Well, at the end of the first century, Pergamum was a rich and powerful city. Located in what is now modern-day Turkey, it served as the capital for the Roman province of Asia. Now, it's uninhabited today, but it is still an impressive place, and you can go there, in fact, thousands do each year, to view, walk the streets and view the ruins that still remain. But in the first century, Pergamon was more than just a political city. It was a center of learning with one of the largest libraries in the ancient world, more than 200,000 volumes. Pergamon was also something like the Mayo Clinic of the ancient world, with the sick arriving daily to worship in the temple of Asclepius, the, the serpent god of healing. They hoped that a visit there might bring a cure. But the most impressive feature of the city was its many temples, including five major temples, temples to people like Zeus, Athena, and even one built to Caesar Augustus himself. They took temple worship there seriously. In fact, citizens in Pergamon were asked to go to the temple and to offer incense and say, Caesar is Lord, as a test of loyalty. And if you refused to do that, it was considered an act of high treason. The critical question is then, how could one live a faithful Christian life and live in the city of Pergamon itself? What could they do and not do? How active could they be in civic life? And what should they do about the invitations that they received, perhaps often, to attend feasts or parties in the city's many temples? Now, the specific issues that we face today are different, but the challenge remains, what does faithfulness to Jesus look like in a culture that often doesn't care much about Christian values? The letter to the church in Pergamon has some really important insights into these questions. And as you'll see in a moment, the church and its people had moments of both great faithfulness as well as moments of a disappointing failure. So I want you to listen to the letter that, that was written to them. Now, the, this letter, we think, is written by the Apostle John, but he wrote it in the voice of Jesus. In other words, these are the things that Jesus has to say to them. Here's the way it begins in Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet, you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, the city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you have also those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears... Let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. This is the word of the Lord. The Christians in Pergamon knew they were in trouble when they heard the first line of this letter. These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Now, the him here is Jesus, and the sword represents Jesus' role as judge. Now, this is a bit like if you got an email from your boss tomorrow morning that said, remember, I can fire you. The first line is a warning. 
Jesus wasn't so much judging them as alerting them to the way that they needed to handle the challenges that they faced. Because Pergamon was not an easy place for Christians to live. Someone seeking to please and honor God found it very difficult to remain faithful because each day brought new pressures to compromise their principles. And the pressure was immense, which meant that they needed to be extra vigilant. That's why this letter reminds them that they live in no ordinary city. The way that the letter writer describes it is he says Satan has his throne there, which means that for all intents and purposes, Satan is in charge of the city. Some in the church probably many, remained faithful to God. That's why he says, you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me. So while all those around them in the city were worshiping Zeus and Athena, even Caesar himself, those in the church continued to worship the name of Jesus and doing so despite the consequences. And sometimes the consequences were very costly. In fact, a church member named Antipas lost his life for refusing to worship the emperor. Just a curiosity here that you may be interested in, that is that Antipas is referred to as faithful witness, and the word witness here is the Greek word martis, from which we get our English word martyr. Martyr actually means a witness, even though we understand that martyrs are people who not only witness with words, but witness with their very lives by offering themselves and going to death for their faith in Jesus. But the Christians in Pergamon were not perfect. In fact, the writer has some very biting criticism, saying, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. And the first thing that the writer mentions is an obscure story in the Old Testament. It's in Numbers chapters 22 to 24. And it describes how Balak, who was the king of the Moabites, um, a neighboring nation who was one of Israel's enemies, hired a pagan prophet named Balaam and asked him to pronounce a curse on Israel so that they could go into battle and defeat the Israelites. So it's kind of like, I want a hex to be placed upon them. But every time that Balaam tried, he would speak, expecting to pronounce a curse, and it would come out as a blessing, which just drove Balak the king nuts. I mean, he's trying to get this guy to do what he wants him to do, and he he can't do it. But then Balaam offered Balak some advice. He said, listen, rather than attack the Israelites directly through military action, He suggested that they try to corrupt them. He suggested that Balak tempt the Israelites into idolatry and sexual immorality. And they did it, and it worked. When the Moabite women seduced the Israelite men, when they tempted them to worship Baal in the temple, it happened. They began to worship not God, but Baal, and God lifted his hand to blessing, and the Israelites were defeated. So what this author is doing is making a parallel, saying that the Christians in Pergamon are facing a similar challenge. Sexual immorality and idolatry were widespread in this city. Much of this was associated with the temple worship in these dozens of temples that were scattered throughout the city. So ironically, even though they were ready to die for the name of Jesus, they were also going to this feast, even having sex with prostitutes during these temple feasts, and it was corrupting their lives and leading them away from God. The letter moves on to make an obscure reference to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, Devin mentioned a couple of weeks ago this and said then, and I will say now, that we don't know exactly what the teaching of the Nicolaitans was, but it seems to have included the idea that Christians were free to do as they pleased. Periodically, I've had conversations with people over the years 
who've said, you know, listen, I know that I'm a Christian by faith in Jesus, but it doesn't really matter what I do. As long as I've said that little prayer or I've made that little profession, you know, I can do what I want. And that's the kind of idea that was starting to spread within the church in Pergamon. But it's a dangerous idea. The writer of the letter wanted them to understand, and he assumed that the Christian church, as it's taught for 2,000 years now, comes that a relationship with God comes in the free gift of grace that comes by putting our faith in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. That's the reason that we're Christians. It's not what we do. And yet, our lives need to change. In other words, when we experience the grace of God, we will see changes in our lives. Barb described some of those just a moment ago. When we know Christ, we will obey, not out of duty per se, but out of gratitude for what Jesus Christ has done for us. So our lives must change. The Nicolaitan idea remains a challenge today. There were some in the church in Pergamon who were living inconsistent lives without any sense of shame, and some do that today. There are some today who don't see a problem with living all week practicing shady business practices. Or on the weekend, substance abuse and sexual infidelity, all the while claiming to be a follower of Christ. The sin that corrupted the nation of Israel in Balaam's time and then tempted them in the teaching of the Nicolaitans has plagued the church for 2,000 years. The writer of this letter challenged them to resist the temptation to compromise and to abandon faithfulness to God. So he's saying Satan might be in control of this city, but he need not be in control of your life. And the same must be true of us today. You know, our understanding of economics must be more driven by the teachings of Jesus than the novels of Ayn Rand. Our sexual ethic must be driven more by faithfulness and fidelity in marriage between a man and a woman than in the lax sexual ethic in our day. In Pergamon, many of them were tempted to say yes to invitations to attend banquets, of the many temples in the city, even to participate in the immorality that took place there. But as much as anything, they did this to fit in. They wanted to fit in, and, and we do too. To turn down an invitation in their day meant to withdraw at least somewhat from the social life of the city. It might even mean that a husband could lose his job or a wife might find her family being considered outcasts. So some decided to participate. But they did so, the author's telling us, at great danger to their souls. The desire to fit in is one that we face today as well. In many ways, it's good. We share much in common with those we work with, those we go to school with, with our neighbors. But to be a Christian means that we will also be different in some important ways. Our ultimate allegiance is to Jesus. And when the values of the Bible conflict with those of our culture our responsibility is to obey God, not to try to fit in. It would be nice if the surrounding culture were entirely hospitable to faith in Jesus, but when it's not, it will be challenging. We often fall into one of three areas, uh, errors when we, when we find these kinds of challenges, and one is the temptation to withdraw, to pull back, to isolate, to avoid any contact with anyone that disagrees with us. And it's an understandable response, but it doesn't follow Jesus' command that we love our neighbor. Others take the opposite approach and become culture warriors, trying to take over culture and impose Christian values on others by force. That's been tried, by the way, and it fails every time, mostly because faith cannot be imposed by force. It's a decision that has to be made by someone personally. It cannot be coerced. But the mistake that those in Pergamon were making was a different one, and that was compromise. To decide, well, if you can't fight them, then join them. 
What's the harm? Or everyone's doing it. The hope is to get along without compromising too many of our Christian values. The problem is that compromise always corrupts. Going along with the flow means eventually becoming one with the flow. And the result is moral decline and a loss of what makes us distinctly Christian people. We live in a world that's hard on those who refuse to go along with the flow. But it was even harder in the first century. As hard as it might be, they had to learn not to withdraw, just as we do. Because Jesus has told us to be salt and light, to engage with those around us and demonstrate the goodness and truth and beauty that makes people curious about who Jesus really is. And we also need to not fall into the temptation of trying to take over. Remembering that the best way to persuade others of the truth is to show them the love of Christ, respecting their personal freedom, but pointing out their accountability and encouraging them to make a decision, to receive the invitation that Jesus offers to each one of us. And we also must not compromise important ethical values in order to fit in. There are so many things in the culture around us that we can celebrate and participate in, but there are also things that we need to say no to. When we compromise, the distinction between the world and the church becomes blurred. And it's a delicate balance. One of the great things about being part of a church community is the opportunity to talk together with one another, to gain insight and wisdom from others, to be able to discern how it is that we can be both loving to our neighbors and faithful to God at the very same time. Well, after exposing the problems in the church, the writer tells them to repent. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, what's interesting here is that even though only some in the church were misbehaving, the entire church was called to repent. They were called to repent even though there were only some in the church that were, that were guilty. That's true, by the way, of all the other letters, the, the entire list of seven letters in this series. The call is to repent is issued to everyone in the church, no matter how little or how much they may have participated in the misbehavior. You see, we're responsible for one another. We're a community. Certainly, we are responsible for our own actions, but we're also responsible together. We cannot, for example, tolerate the misbehavior of others. We need to, um, even if we're not participating, we need to gently encourage and challenge others to live in the way that honors Jesus. Sin is not simply a personal problem. Institutions, including churches, can sin as well. Just as we're to confess our sins to God, the church must confess its own sin as well. While some in the community may bear more responsibility than others, we all bear responsibility together. And there are a number of examples of this, particularly in the Old Testament, when Israel prayed corporate prayers of confession, even though there were only some among them who had committed those sins. So you can look at Ezra chapters 9 and 10, Nehemiah 1, Daniel chapter 9, and the lesson there is clear. If we see sin within the community, it's to be confessed. Patterns of sin must be admitted if the church is to move forward in full integrity. Evil in whatever form must not be tolerated. Now, we all know that among other things, our nation has a troubled history when it comes to race and the treatment of Native Americans. And unfortunately, the church in America has often been silent and even complicit in actively excluding persons of color and the full, their full participation in the church and in community life. 
Now, sure, many of these offenses are in the past, and yet the implications, the effects of them have extended into the present. The church as a whole is accountable. And just as the church in Pergamon was accountable, even though not everyone in the church was among those who were the offenders. So those sins need to be confessed. We need to work toward restitution in those matters. The letter to Pergamum starts with grace. It starts with praise. The balance tips toward rebuke, but it ends with hope. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Now, both of these references here are obscure, and I read a lot this week, and scholars aren't exactly sure what it, what it all means, what it refers to. Although the hidden manna likely refers to the way that God promises to sustain us and to nourish us in whatever it is we face. And the white stones could be a reference to stones that were used almost like admission tickets to events. You were given one, and that was the way you were able to gain access to whatever the event was. And the names on it could be the name of Jesus, or it could be the name of the person and an indication of their acceptance into the community of faith. What Jesus is promising here is uh, simply to take care of us while we're here on earth and to bring us in the end to his eternal kingdom. And that's the hope that we all have. Now, this is just the third of the seven letters to these ancient churches. But as you can see already, if you've been with us over the last couple of weeks, each one of these churches is a mixed bag. But as we also see here, there is always an opportunity to make things right. Wherever we are, wherever we're starting, we can go forward and make things right. A year or so ago, I read a biography of Leonardo da Vinci, and he's one of the greatest artists of all time. Although you may know, although I was surprised in reading the book, that only 20, around 20 of his paintings actually survive. And there weren't many more that he actually painted, just a handful, really. By comparison, there are 350 Rembrandts that we have today and 13,500 Picassos. The reason that da Vinci painted so few paintings was he was constantly planning. There, in some of the paintings, there are all sorts of sketches that he made over the time to try to organize his thoughts and get around what he was trying to do. And then he worked, and he reworked, and when everybody thought the painting was done, he said, no, no, I need to make a few more tweaks. And he just kept doing that. And the net effect was that relatively little painting got done, and some of what he started was never finished, including the painting of St. Jerome that's on the screen. You know, the same is true in our lives. As long as we're alive, as long as you're alive, you are a work in progress. When you fail to do an important thing, it's important then to own up to it, to confess your sins, and then move on, committed by God's grace to do better in the future. So commit to faithfulness, say no to compromise, and let God do what He needs to do in your life. Would you pray with me, please? Father, the temptation to compromise can be powerful. Sometimes all we want to do is fit in. But we also know that your ways are best, that you are Lord of all, and in following you is true life and blessing and peace. May we be faithful to you. May you help us see ways in which we have let the world and its systems creep in and threaten to corrupt our lives. And when we stray, whether that be in our lives or even in something that's part of this church as a whole. May we be humble enough to repent and make the changes we need to make. In the meantime, nourish and sustain us now, and may we always remember your promise to bring us to our eternal home. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.